Iskan founder Acharya Shula Prabhupada Kinja, Nantapati Vaishnava Kinja, Namacharya Shula Haridas Takur Kinja, Pranam Chiko Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda, Shri Dori Tigadadha, Shri Vasari Gora Bhakti Bhunta Kinja, Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gora Gopina Shamakunda Radha Kunda Vidhi Govardhana Kinja, Vrindavan Dhamma Kinja, Matur Dhamma Kinja, Ravajit Mayapur Dhamma Kinja, Jagannath Puri Dhamma Kinja, Ganga Mai Juna Devi Kinja, Bhakti Devi Kinja, Tosi Maharani Kinja, Samaveta Bhakti Vrindi Kinja, Gora Premananda, all glorious to the assembled devotees, all glorious to the assembled devotees, all glorious to the assembled devotees, all glorious to Sri Guru and Gauranga, all glorious to Sri Namaste Saraswati Devi Gauravani Bhutani Nivasasasani Vali Paskatata Satani Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uttapadakamam Shri Guru Vaishnavam Shri Rupam Sadhvajatam Sahagana Raghunatham Vipam Samsajiva Sadvoitam Sadvajitam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Param Sahagana Vaitashi Vashakam Vipamsha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya in Brisbane, Australia, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 11, Chapter 17, Description of the Varnashram System, Text 32. Vritta dear Pasita, Rama Varchas Vyaka, Rama Varchas Vakalmasa, Rama Varchas Vakalmasa. Agna Gurava Manicha, Agna Gurava Manicha, Sarabashapu Teshumam Param, Sarabu Teshumam Param. Apritagdhir Upasita, Apratakir Upasita, Brahma Varchasvakalmasha, Brahma Varchasvakalmasha. Ladies, 
Without any concept of duality, Upasita, one should worship. Brahma Varchasvi, possessing Vedic enlightenment. Akalmasaha, sinless. Translation. Thus enlightened in Vedic knowledge, by service to the spiritual master, free from all sins and duality, one should worship me as a super soul, as I appear within fire, the spiritual master, one's own self, and all living entities. Purport. One becomes glorious and enlightened by faithfully serving a bona fide spiritual master who is expert in the Vedic way of life. Thus purified, one never engages in sinful activities, which immediately extinguish the fire of spiritual enlightenment. Nor does one become foolish and small-minded, trying to exploit material nature for personal sense gratification. A purified human being is a pritagdi, or without consciousness of duality, because he has been trained to observe the Supreme Personality of Godhead within all things. Such sublime consciousness should be systematically taught throughout the world so that human society will become peaceful and sublime. Agnoguro Atmanicha Saravabhuteshunamparam Apitagdir Upastita Brahmavarchas Thus enlightened in Vedic knowledge by service to the spiritual master, free from all sins and duality, one should worship me as a super soul, as I appear within fire, the spiritual master, one's own self, and all living entities. So this part, by service to the spiritual master, is in reference to the previous verse. It's not in this uh, translation. It's not in the Sanskrit itself. So here again, we're looking at how to find God. Where do you find God? Difficult. How do you find God? We generally see in terms of duality. So in terms of duality, we see, okay, this is me, and that's you. And that's a tree, and that's an ant, and here's the world, and God is somewhere out there. God is somewhere transcendent, or I have to find him in, in some difficult way. But here it's talking about without any duality. So here we're looking at the imminence of God. Now there's two basic philosophies, transcendental or spiritual philosophies. One is that God is imminent, and one is that God is transcendent. These are the Western terms. So God is imminent means that God is everywhere and in everything. And God is transcendent means that God is in nothing and nowhere except in his own abode. He's completely separate. And these are the two main uh, spiritual and religious philosophies that pervade the world. So we have uh, in most branches of Christianity, in Islam, in Judaism, 
the concept is that God is completely transcendent. There's God and the world, and the world is evil. And they even have a concept of a competitor God, almost the devil, who's in charge of the world and who infuses the world with evil and suffering, even though God doesn't want it to be like that. And one should renounce the world and simply seek God. Uh, the only connection they see between the world and God is that God created the world, and therefore you're grateful for the things in the world, and you enjoy the world with the blessings of God. But they still see the world as something very separate. And then you have other philosophies which are not so uh, prominent in the major religions, uh, but particularly, of course, uh, from Sankaracharya in India, this idea that our God is everywhere and everything, and he has no separate existence besides everything that me and you and the trees and the water, you all put them together and you get God. You know, God is just sort of diffused everywhere. And of course, this sort of philosophy is gaining in uh, interest and acceptance throughout the world and is starting to change the major world religions. To think in that way, that God is not a person. And so generally when you talk to people in the world about God being a person, they don't know what you're talking about. It's just like, huh, God is a person? God is just everywhere. God is just a light. God is just a force. And it, it's really fascinating. There's a, a scholar of religion who concluded that the rise of materialism in the world is directly due to the concept of God being fully transcendent, which I thought was really interesting. Because our, you know, we are in our prayer to Srila Prabhupada, our pranam mantra, we say, you're knocking out this idea of God only as imminent. You're also positing that God is, is imminent and transcendent, that he's also a separate person. But if you only say that God is transcendent, you run into problems. Well, why is that? Because if God is only transcendent, you can no longer see God in the world. You can no longer connect the world with him. The world becomes evil. Everything in the world becomes evil. And you see this, this tendency in people who they go to a, a mountaintop, right? You see these monasteries that are in the top of a mountain and there's just a hole in the floor where they put down a bucket to get goods every once in a while. You know, they never interact with the world. They don't talk to anybody in the world. Or people taking vows of, of poverty that they're going to live without anything in the world. And as soon as you do that, then you come into what's called secularism. And secularism means that you interpret everything in the world without reference to God. You interpret your own life without reference to God. And secularism is so strong right now that if there's some sort of a disaster in the world, right, there's an airplane crash, there's an earthquake, there's whatever there may be, and that if any of us were to go to the press and say, oh, this is the will of God, or this is the karma of these people, we'd be very much criticized, yes? We've all learned in our public relations that you cannot do that publicly. You cannot say, well, th this has something to do with God. This can be interpreted and understood through the lens of spiritual philosophy. That you just have to say, we don't know why this happens. We just don't know, it's just chance. It's just random chance. Everyone is a random victim of their circumstances. And this is secularism. Secularism means you, your, your filter that you put on 
through which you see the world, is one of separateness from God. It's separateness from purpose, from direction, from intelligence. Everything is random chance. And it's religious philosophies that only teach transcendence that give birth to this kind of secular thinking. And so nowadays, in most of the world, religion and God is just in the temples and the churches and the synagogues and the mosques and is tolerated by society rather than encouraged by society. Okay, that's something you can do, but keep it separate. Keep it in a separate building, keep it at a separate time, don't have it enter your conversations, don't have it enter your academic papers, don't have it enter your political papers, don't have it enter the discussion of ecology and so forth and so on. Just keep it out. You know, if you want to keep your religion as some sort of primitive idea, you know, because you're attached to it for your tradition, fine. But, but have it a separate part of your life. And the problem is that when you say God is transcendent, that you lead to this kind of thinking. And it's this kind of thinking that has made it very difficult for those of us who really dedicated ourselves wholeheartedly or want to dedicate ourselves wholeheartedly or want to want to dedicate ourselves wholeheartedly to Krishna consciousness. It makes it very difficult for us to function in the world. It makes it difficult for us to have jobs. It makes it difficult for us to go to school in the world because people see us as some kind of a fanatic that we're trying to bring the transcendent God you know, okay, maybe. But, but don't bring him into your life. Don't talk about him too much. Don't, don't relate everything to him. Have, a, have another life that's separate from him. We become branded as some kind of fanatics. On the other hand, if you only see God as imminent, you also have a big problem. Right? If everything and everywhere is God, and God is in everything, and, and there's no, God has no separate existence as a person, then it's also very hard to connect the world to God because connect the world to whom? You know, everything is spiritual. Okay, but how do I get a relationship? We're, we're hankering not just for everything is spiritual, but we're hankering for some personal loving relationships. You know, if you just go to some beautiful, peaceful place by the ocean, but you never have any connection with any other living being, how long is it going to be satisfying for? Isn't that correct? Right? I mean, people put into solitary confinement start going crazy. They'll start talking to the ants. Because we want a personal relationship. And therefore, you see that people who talk about God as being imminent only, all right, well, they can connect religion to ecology and they can connect religion to everything, but they end up looking for satisfaction in material things because they, they're not really finding that spiritual satisfaction in a relationship with Krishna. Prabhupada talks about this a lot, that those who seek just the oneness of Brahman, that they end up engaged again. Jai, Shishi that most of them end up engaged again in something material. It may be on a high level. You know, they may be engaged in charity work and welfare. But they end up get coming into some kind of materialistic work because just God is imminent is not satisfying. We want a variety of personal relationships. And it, what Jiva Prabhupada is countering in his preaching is he's counting this idea of secularism that God is separate from the world, that there's no God. And by the way, there's two varieties of secularism. 
And he's countering this idea that God is just everywhere and doesn't exist in his own personal form. Uh, for those who are interested, the two varieties of secularism, both of which Shilaprapa preaches against very heavily, are one that there is an objective truth, but it's not spiritual. There's some objective truth, but it's just a mathematical formula. And that objective truth can be understood through the empiric scientific method. There's one objective truth for everyone, and it can, it's material, it's mundane, it's some sort of mathematical formula, and it can be understood through our senses and logic. And the other brand of secularism is there is no ultimate truth. Everyone has their own relative truth. Whatever you want to do, it's all equally good. And that kind of secularism ironically says, absolutely, there's no absolute. And we tolerate all philosophies except those that say that there's an absolute. Those, those are the two brands of secularism that Srila Prabhupada was very interested in countering. Now, Srila Prabhupada didn't try to counter just transcendence, but he says you have to have both the transcendence and the imminence. This is, of course, our philosophy from Mahaprabhu of Ajinta Veda Veda Tattva, that God is everywhere and in everything. There's no duality. There's no God and not God. Everything is God's energy, and God's energy and God are the same. And therefore, everything is one. There is an absolute oneness. And at the same time, God is separate. And there's an absolute difference, which of course is impossible to think about. How can, how can we all be absolutely the same as God and absolutely different from God? How is that possible? Therefore, it's called achincha. It's inconceivable. And we try to explain this achincha, this inconceivable thing, with material analogies. But the material analogies are never absolute. So we can say the sunshine coming into the room is totally absolutely the same as the sun and totally absolutely not the same as the sun. But it's not really totally absolutely the same and totally absolutely different at the same time. But whereas in this case, a change beta beta tapha, it's totally absolutely the same and totally absolutely different at the same time. Just like Krishna says in the chapter Sloki um, of the Bhagavatam, the first one, that before the creation there was only I, during the creation there's nothing but myself, and after the creation there's also nothing but myself. That's absolute. But he's saying, aham, aham, I. So that first verse of the chapter Sloki is very much teaching a chintubedibedita. Because Krishna's saying I, I means you're a person. And I means there must be something that is not I, otherwise there's no meaning to I. At the same time he's saying there's nothing that is not I. Everything is, is myself. So with this wonderful philosophy of Achincha Veda Veda Tattva, this gives us practical spirituality that no philosophy that says only transcendence or only immanence can give. The only transcendent philosophy leaves you stuck. You can't function in the world. Everything you do in the world becomes materialistic. You can enjoy by the grace of God, which is what the, those religions end up going to. You know, I, I enjoy my money by the grace of God, thank you God. I enjoy my family by the grace of God, thank you God. But, but there's a separation. And imminence destroys the love, destroys the relationship, it destroys the variety. And so you hanker for material things. Whereas with the Sachinja Beta Beta Tukva, you have everything. We can connect everything and everyone with Krishna. Because everything and everyone is ultimately Krishna. At the same time, we can have a loving relationship with Krishna and we can see individuality. Like here it's saying, in all living entities. We'll start with that. 
seeing God in all living entities. So that means that Krishna is in the heart. Everybody, every living entity is a walking temple. Just like this is a, a building, it's made out of bricks and drywall and plumbing, electricity, just like all the other buildings in the area. But when we come in here, we offer our obeisances. When we come in here, we show special respect. Make sure we come in here with clean clothes and we, we, we try to wear clothing that reminds us of something spiritual, right? We have some special regard when we come in this building. Why? This building is every other building because Krishna is here. Of course, Krishna is in every building. But we're recognizing that Krishna is here. So everyone's body is like a temple. And there's a little altar in the heart. And don't worry that Krishna's feet get bloody. It's there. The heart chakra, not in the physical heart. Krishna doesn't have to worry that the blood is gushing past his feet. But every body is a temple of God. The tree, the ant, the worm. Everyone. Not only the devotees, not only the human beings, not only the other Australians or the other Indians or the other Gujaratis or everybody. And therefore, in every religion, it says one should love one's neighbor as oneself. One should love all living entities. Of course, people take this to mean only people who are like me. You know, the women, or we're just going to fight for the women, or the men, we're just going to fight for the men, or we're just going to fight for the other Indians, or just for the other Russians, or, you know, whatever. The prophet often talks about this. We're going to be nice to the people, but we're going to kill the cows. You know, or we're going to be nice to the other Catholics, and we're going to kill the Protestants. We're going to be nice to the other Shiites and kill the Sunnis, or whatever. But we see all living entities, Krishna is there within the heart. And not only Krishna is there within the heart. Uh, in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, I am the mother, the father, the grandsire, Prabhupada says in that purport, every living entity is part of Krishna, therefore everyone is nothing but Krishna. That there is a sense, not only in which God is in the heart, and there's a living entity in God in the heart, but there's another sense in which everyone is Krishna. Everyone is the part of Krishna is Krishna. And we see with, um, say, with the great sages on Tapaloka, that when Gopal Kumar went there, he was looking for the Lord, who wasn't externally visible because everyone there was just meditating on him, that sometimes the residents there would assume the forms of the Lord. The four Kumars would, would manifest forms of the Lord. We, call, we have something called a Shaktivesh Avatar, right? where the Lord is acting through that jiva, that's when someone is realizing that they have this oneness with the Lord. We also have, can you tell me some other instances in the Bhagavatam where devotees acted as the Lord? Narad Muni. Hmm? Narad Muni. Gautam Muni. Where they're actually feeling, I am Krishna. Parasuram. Parasuram was a Saktivesavatam. Prithumaraj. Pritchi Maharaj, yeah? Yes, yeah, I guess. I don't know if you saw it ever. I'm not sure of any example of this one. There's Pallad Maharaj. The Pallad Maharaj in ecstasy. We feel total oneness with the Lord. We feel I am the Lord. Oh, they, yes. They, yes. Yeah. The gopis, 
in Rasmi. So when Krishna was separated from them, they meditated on Krishna so much that they identified fully with Krishna. Completely. I am Krishna. Just see how I'm moving. I'm lifting over and how they completely identified with Krishna. Completely felt with Krishna. Just like Krishna sometimes totally identifies with his devotees. Just like Mahaprabhu, he's totally identifying with Radha. And then sometimes Radha, she's totally identifying with Krishna. So that is there. Uh, that is there. And therefore, Maharaj Prithvi said that when the Brahmin cursed him, he saw that Krishna had taken the form of this curse. So if one sees all living entities one like, like that, then one never gets angry at anybody. One never sees anyone as their enemy. It sees ultimately Krishna's acting. At the same time, each living entity is an individual soul with individual free will and an individual personality. At the same time, each living entity is, is totally and completely not Krishna. We see when Krishna expanded as the cowherd boys and the cows, each of them had their distinct personalities. And in Krishna's Leela, sometimes he, in Andrew Yogamaya, it's like Krishna doesn't even know what the devotees are going to do. He didn't know the cowherd boys were going to go into Agasura's mouth. He didn't know Rukmini was going to faint when he argued with him. Otherwise, there's no, you know, if you always knew what everybody was going to do, life would be boring, yes? We like surprises. Krishna also likes surprises in his relationships. And if there's only oneness, then there's, there's, there's no interchange, there's no variety. Everybody just thinks the same thing at the same time and does the same thing at the same time. And there's no interchange. But we're actually looking for this kind of relationship. We want a relationship with someone else where we're completely one and yet we're completely separate, isn't it? where we have total harmony, where we can understand each other's thinkings, and we really, you know, when people talk about finding a soulmate or something like that, that's what they're talking about. But yet you're two separate people. Yet you have your individual likes and dislikes. So how do we practically worship Krishna in all living entities? How do we manifest this practically? Well, one way is that however other people deal with us, we see ultimately it's Krishna dealing with us that no living entity can act independently of Krishna. Nobody can give me some benefit or some harm independently of Krishna's desire. It's just not possible. No one has that power. And another way is I show respect. I show respect to all living entities. All living entities. I don't only show respect to senior devotees, or I don't only show respect to people who are older than me, or I don't only show respect to people in the government, or I don't only show respect to people who I want something from, which is usually the people that we show respect to. But I show respect to all living entities. I show respect also to my children. I show respect to my subordinates. I show respect to my employees. And, uh, I mean, we see this generally in devotees. I remember once when I was uh, at the university, some students were up giving a presentation, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the presentation, uh, one of the uh, women said, oh, there's a spider, and then she slammed on it with her shoe, and she said, not anymore, and I thought devotees would never be here. <laughs> no, it was just so shocking. I hadn't seen anything like that for decades. Now, devotees have this concept of respect for all living entities. You know, if Prabhupada saw a little bug in the room, he 
call Shruti Kirti and say, you know, put him outside, I think he's hungry. We really try not to harm anyone. Of course, we have the danger of familiarity breeds contempt, that, you know, we're nice to the little bugs and then we're mean to our wife. <laughs> we can run into that kind of problem, right? Or, or we think that just because somebody is the temple president of the GBC, that that means they got a t-shirt with a target on it. Right? And, and, and somehow, as soon as somebody takes some responsibility and has some title, then that means we can throw rotten tomatoes at them. And, but we'll be nice to the little worm that crawled into our room. So this is, I want you to have respect for all living entities. All living entities. And in social exchange, we may externally show special respect, you know, if the prime minister walks in the room or uh, our great-grandfather or something like that. But really, we have respect for all living entities. We, we don't see that. Uh, that one living entity is intrinsically greater than another. Vijavanaya sampane brahmani gavihasana suyam chayasupakecha pandita samarashina. And that every living entity, every the body of every living entity is a temple of the Lord. This is why we use the tilak. The tilak is like a sign, like we put a sign outside the building. This is a Hare Krishna temple. And Krishna is in every building. I mean, how is Krishna not in every building? Yeah, this is, you know, we're going to acknowledge, we're going to install the deity. So the tilak is an acknowledgement. My body is a temple. I'm going to treat my body as a temple. All right, then we have the fire. So I'm assuming this refers specifically to the sacrificial fire, uh, that worshiping the Lord in the fire of sacrifice. And often the Lord's form is compared literally to sacrifice. But we could take this to mean any fire, and we talked about this the other day seeing the qualities of Krishna in heat and in light. So we're not going to go through that extensively, and my apologies to those of you who missed that. But we'll just uh, very much touch on it. I'm going to ask you if anybody can remember. So how can we meditate on Krishna in heat? Beauty. Beauty. Okay, that's more in light. Light allows us to see beauty. The light is what has all the colors. So whenever in light, we can meditate on how Krishna is the most beautiful. Okay, anyone else? The fire of digestion. And how do we meditate on Krishna as the fire of digestion? Gives us strength. Okay, meditate on how Krishna is giving us strength, how the fire is giving us strength. Krishna says, I am the strength of the strong. We can perform tapasya. We could perform tapasya. How does that relate to heat and light? Well, tapas, tapas means heat, and the root of tapasya is um, uh, withstanding the heat of the sacrificial fire, and that's where the word tapasya comes from. Austeri. Oh, the word austerity comes from tapas, which tapas and tapas means heat, and the heat is originally the heat of the sacrificial fire. That is so cool. <laughs> Thank you. So anytime we undertake any difficulty willingly with love for Krishna, we can meditate on how that's the heat of the sacrificial fire burning up all of our sins. Yes. That is so nice. Do you know why the renunciates wear saffron colored cloth? In the Bhagavatam. It's only in one verse and it's an obscure verse. It's the color of the Hiranyagarbha. Well, it's also the color of the sacrificial fire. They're supposed to wear clothes colored like that of the sacrificial fire. 
And the sannyasis are supposed to do what with the sacrificial fire also? Sannyasis brahmacharis. Yesterday we talked about the celibates. The celibates are supposed to take the sacrificial fire and take it within themselves. They're supposed to internalize. It's supposed to be a walking sacrificial fire. And the clothes are a symbol of the fact that they are supposed to be a walking sacrificial fire. Very nice. Okay, any other meditations on the Lord as fire, as heat, or what? Oh, you made my whole day. Thank you. Come on, we had a whole meditation just like two days ago. You even had papers to take home with you. Krishna says he's the light of the sun. He says, I am the sun. He says, the sun is my eye. Allowing us to see everything whatever we can see. And that is Krishna. He says he's the light in all luminous objects. What are some of the qualities of light that remind us of Krishna? Knowledge. Light gives us knowledge. Okay. What's the other quality of light? It's an expression. Hmm? It's an expression of thought. It means that without light, we couldn't see anything. It's just two dimensions. One is it, it, it gets darkness. You know, we can explain in spiritual way. At the same time, also material way. It means that without light, we couldn't see anything. We couldn't anything. So God reduces. Beautiful, thank you. Can we think beyond seeing? Let's think about light beyond just that you can see. What are some other qualities of light in which we can see the presence, we understand the presence of God, beyond the fact that light enables us to see? It keeps you warm in the winter. That's heat. <laughs> Let's do light first. Another thing is that look, we, we are talking about whether it is a uh, you know, absolute imminent or transcendental. It can both. Like sun, if we say sun and sunshine. Mm. Ah, so we can meditate on the sun and the, yeah. the sunshine and understanding the imminence and transcendent. But think, let's just think about light. What do we use light for besides seeing? We talked about this two days ago. What do we use light for? Yes. Yes, okay, so light is what's, uh, all the vegetation is eating light. That's its food. That's pretty amazing. And everything on this planet is eating something that's eating light or eating light. So everything on this planet is either eating light or eating something that's eating light. Everything we're eating is made out of light. It's made out of light and some water and a little few minerals from the earth. You can even do hydrophonic gardening where you just put in a few little minerals. That means that our bodies are made of transformed light. 
something made out of plastic. What is plastic? Plastic is, is made from what? Petroleum. Petroleum is made from? Plants. It's transformed light. Is that amazing? I mean, really, is that amazing? Look at your hand for a minute. A few days ago, that was light. Just light, just sunlight. And the sunlight transformed into rice and wheat and broccoli, which then transformed into skin and bones and muscle. And what happens again when the body's there, when we cremate the body again, it's released. The heat and light of the sun is again released. When the body's burned, what does it turn into? It turns into heat and light, and some ash, which is the earth minerals, and water, which is, becomes the smoke. It's pretty amazing. Manifestation of the power of God. Could we do that? Could we do that? Could we turn light into rice? And then turn rice into a fingernail? Something like that. What else about that? We're talking about how every culture uses light for? In every culture, light is associated with? Are you looking it up online? I'm just writing So in every culture, light is associated with? Auspiciousness. Auspiciousness. And it's used, therefore, for? What do they use light for? Every culture. Besides just to see. Is Krishna welcoming us? Okay. okay, now what about heat? What are some of the qualities of heat? Anyone can remember? It purifies. Purifies. In the same way Krishna purifies. What are some other qualities of heat? Transforms. Hmm? Heat is transforming the... It transforms things. Right? When you take your cauliflower and your potatoes and you put them over the heat, it changes the texture and the flavor. It transforms things. So does Krishna also transform things? So that way you can understand. There's Krishna. Krishna is manifesting the heat. He's transforming our heart. Also destroys, particularly destroys sin, destroys ignorance. 
Something else about you. Heat is what's digesting our food. It's, it's transforming elements. Mm. Cooking also. Yes, quit changing the food, and it's, it's 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 the heat which is transforming the light into the rice into the fingers. Keep us alive. Yes, actually, warmth is very much associated with life. And Krishna says, "I am the life of all that lives." Is there warmth in this room? To become aware of it. Generally, we're not aware of it. We just, oh yeah, it's warm. Can you become aware of it? Can you feel that the room has warmth? That warmth is Krishna. Krishna says, I am the heat in fire. And warmth is associated with life. Love, love also. With love and with life. We are therefore surrounded all, all the time. Right? With, whenever we're surrounded by any warmth, even the warmth that comes out of our own body, I am the heat in fire, Krishna says. says, I am the light in all luminous objects, I am the heat in fire. So we can, if we just, at any moment of the day, at any time, we can become Krishna conscious. Becoming Krishna conscious is not something reserved for some great saint in the Himalayas and someday I'll become Krishna conscious. It's, it's not supposed to be like that. It's not supposed to be that you come here and you do some great austerities and you don't have any taste. <laughs> and then someday, one day you wake up and, woo, I have a taste. It's, it's supposed to be that from the beginning that one has some Krishna consciousness. So this is some awareness that the, the heat in my own body, the heat in the environment, the light in the environment, that is Krishna. And warmth is loving and, and indicative of life. Right? We also talked about how heat is very subtle. I can see light, or I can, I'm, I'm very aware of light, but I don't see heat. Right? And yet it's very powerful. So in that same way, we don't see Krishna, but he's very powerful. We could talk more about fire. Okay, then we have in the guru. I think that's the easiest. Uh, that we see Krishna in the guru. We say, Sakshad Haritvena Samastha Shastri. That without Guru, how would we know anything about Krishna? And we understand the instructions of Guru are as good as the instructions of Krishna. Now again, we don't see that the Guru is Krishna in the sense that it's not that the Guru is playing flute and dancing with the gopis. Then you're in trouble. Now if you start thinking like that. Or people sometimes think, my Guru is going to meet all my emotional needs and read my mind. You know, then again you have problems. Oh, but certainly Krishna is manifested the Guru. The Guru is not an ordinary person. If one sees the Guru as an ordinary person, then one is in big trouble. Oh, well, what does that mean? Isn't the Guru a jiva like every other jiva? Well, yes, but just like a police officer is not an ordinary citizen. If you get stopped by a police officer and you treat that police officer as if they're an ordinary citizen, you're going to be in trouble. Correct? And at least I know in America, I think in almost every country in the world, if you harm a police officer, you kill a police officer, it's a much more serious crime than if you do the same thing to an ordinary citizen. So in one sense, the police officer is just a person like everybody else, and they're just a citizen like everybody else. They're not a different category of being. There's not some sort of tattva 
you know, some different kind of tattva of a jiva who's a guru. It's not like that. At the same time, they're not an ordinary person because they're acting as a conduit for the Lord. And uh, there's uh, interesting, there's a couple places where Srila Prabhupada said, Guru's not a particular person, Guru is a truth. Guru is a principle. And anybody who repeats that truth, anybody who's a conduit for that truth, they are spiritual master. Now, of course, in one sense, we can see everyone is teaching us, yes? As the 11 gurus mentioned later in the Bhagavatam, that we can see that Krishna is acting through everyone, everyone is our teacher. Srila Prabhupada would say, all of you, my disciples, are you really all my spiritual masters? I am really serving all of you. We can learn something from everyone. We can get some message from Krishna through everyone. Still, still, there are certain persons who particularly have taken a responsibility for us in spiritual life. So I can learn something from, you know, somebody in the store. I can learn something from somebody in the airport. I can learn something from anybody. I remember once at an airport many, many, many years ago. I was waiting for a plane. And there was this young woman that was so beautiful. I, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody that beautiful in my life. She was so beautiful that anybody who walked past her would stop and look at her. Men, women, children. I mean, everybody was just kind of looking at her. It was just very extraordinary. You know, most of the so-called beautiful people, it's a lot of makeup and manipulation, and they're not really that beautiful. And then this was, you could tell how long ago this was, she took out a cigarette and lit a cigarette. And somehow, as soon as she did that, people weren't looking at her anymore. Or at least it greatly decreased. She damaged her attractiveness immediately. And I learned something from that. I learned that attractiveness is not only in some physical characteristics, you have the right shape of eye and the right shape of nose, etc., but it's also in your behavior. So, she was my guru. You follow but was she taking any responsibility for me? No. So the guru who takes responsibility for us, like the Diksha guru, what does the Diksha guru do that the Shiksha guru doesn't do? Because it says in Chaitanya Charitamrita that if you discriminate between Diksha and Shiksha guru, that you're committing an offense. But there's a difference in, in function. And the difference in function is that the Diksha guru particularly puts their name on the line for you. Prabhupada compares Diksha to enrolling in a university. So you could think of the Diksha Guru as like your admissions officer, the person who signs the document, yes, this person can be enrolled in the university. Right? You, put, you send in your papers. My grandson was talking to me yesterday about applying for a, not my grandson who's here, his older brother, about applying for a scholarship and he'd written a little essay and he wanted to show it to me and get my feedback. You know, so you send in your little essay, your forms, to the university, but there's some person, or sometimes a group of people, that reviews your application and says, okay, you're in, right? Or when you're going into a country, there's the immigrations officer in the little booth, right? And they have a, a big responsibility before they stamp your passport. You know, if you end up being a criminal or a terrorist or something, hey, who let this guy in? As you imagine in a university, if they find out there's a whole group of students, they just party, they don't do well in their grades, they all flunk out after six months, and they notice that all those people are let in by the same admissions officer, they're going to go to that. Hey, what are you doing? Right? So Prabhupada said the Diksha Guru is taking some responsibility. That if, if we take initiation and then we mess up, it looks bad for him, he gets in trouble. 
Therefore, we say the guru may have to suffer the sins of the disciple. You know, Krishna says, what are you doing? Why are you letting these people into the sampradaya? So therefore, there's some special obligation that we have to the Diksha Guru, because the Diksha Guru is taking, putting their name on the line, saying, I vouch for this person. This, this person's worthy to enter into the Sampradaya, and I'm confident that this person is going to graduate from the Sampradaya. They're not going to give a bad name. And that's the worst thing, isn't it? When somebody in the name of God misbehaves? Some ordinary person misbehaves? But someone who's supposed to be representing God misbehaves? It causes such a problem. And of course, the Shiksha Guru is also taking responsibility to impart knowledge up to us. He takes some responsibility for us. Again, these are people who are saying, if you follow my instructions, then you'll be able to go back to home, back to God. That's a very big responsibility. You know, I, I was involved in a situation recently where one disciple got a Shalagam Shila without asking her guru. And the guru said, wait a minute, where did you get the Shalagam Shila from? Why are you starting this worship? What's going on? This is not what I want you to do. You're not ready for this yet. And then she said, oh, I, oh Guru Maharaj, I shouldn't have told you. You know, the spiritual master was saying, wait a minute, I'm taking responsibility for you. And, and what you need in exchange is you need to be obedient. So this is seeing God in the guru. Not that we think that the guru is going to satisfy all my emotional needs. That will bring you into big trouble. And it happens over and over again in our heart that people think, you know, Guru's going to be God for me. But Guru's God for you in the sense that if one follows the Guru's instructions and pleases the Guru, one will find God. Then perhaps the most interesting one here, which is the one we're going to end on, is in oneself. One should worship God in all living entities, in the fire, in the Guru, and in oneself. What? Well, in oneself? Well, wait a minute. I thought that was the whole problem. <laughs> you know? Thinking that I'm God. And now I'm supposed to worship God in, in myself. What does that mean? Okay, Paramatma. Then I'm a, a walking temple of God. Again, that's the idea of the Tilak. That's the idea of taking proper care of our, our body, taking proper care of our mind, engaging our body and mind in Krishna's service, giving ourself to Krishna. But this isn't only talking about the super soul. This isn't only talking about that Krishna is sitting next to me. It's also talking about that I'm a part of God. Mama, I'm so jiva, okay, jiva, and sanatana. I'm a little part of God. Therefore, we have words in the Shastra like Atma Rati. You all know what Rati means? Pleasure. Pleasure and? Love. And an intense love. Who is the personality, Rati? She's in Krishna book. She has something to do with the fish. Yes? The wife of Cupid, yes. Rati is the wife of Cupid. So a very intense love. Atma Rati. Do you have love for the self? And of course, I'm sure you're all familiar with the words Atma Rama. Yes? Everyone's heard Atma Rama. What does Rama mean? <laughs> pleasure. To take pleasure in the self. We have also in the Bhagavad Gita Atma Tushta. What does Tushta mean? 
Satisfaction, to be satisfied in oneself. We talk a lot about self-satisfaction. Yes. So this is the concept. Krishna says this in the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, that one will see the self by the pure mind and one will relish and rejoice in the self. Which, of course, should indicate to us that humility is not self-hatred. If someone who's perfectly humble is someone who's if someone who's enlightened is someone who's perfectly humble are the same person, yes. And the person who's enlightened relishes and rejoices in the self and loves the self, takes pleasure in the self, and takes satisfaction in the self. Then the self must be pretty wonderful, and the self is pretty wonderful. The self has most of the qualities of God. So also we should see God in ourselves. Not just that God is sitting next to me in the heart, but we should see God in ourselves. You say, well, where does humility come in? So actually, the more that you see God in yourself, the more humble you feel. Because here I am, a part of God, and I willingly, I am, not have in the past, but I am present in the present tense, I am willingly and knowingly jumping into the sewer. So to see a pig in the sewer is not any lament, anything lamentable. That's not lamentable. But if you see a prince in the sewer, that's lamentable. Does that make sense? If some fly is in the sewer. Is that you know? <laughs> but if the king is bathing in the sewer, that's a very sad thing. If somebody who comes from a rich, famous, aristocratic family, you know, PhD from Harvard, great career, famous, etc., 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 when they have trouble, it's a big scandal, yes? When that uh, Tiger Woods, when he, when he was involved in the scandal, it's a big scandal. Because everyone thought, oh, he's such an honest, upright, spiritual person. And it turned out he wasn't. And so disappointing. Big headlines. Whereas if somebody born in the slums, you know, to drug-addicted parents, if they had some, they wouldn't make headlines. Nobody would be putting in the headlines. So the fact that we are part and parcel of God, that we have the qualities of God, that we willingly choose to enter into illusion is very lamentable. If, if we were if we were just materialistic means, what would it matter? So this is if we really see God in ourselves, then we will act godly. Not just that God is in my heart watching me like some big boss, you know. But I am a part of God. I am meant to be godly. I am I am meant to be wonderful. I am meant to be such a wonderful being that upon seeing myself I relish and rejoice in myself. How lamentable it is that I am trying to enjoy things separately from God, and I am trying to, that I am engaged in envy and lust and anger and greed and so forth. So here we have our perfect philosophy beyond duality, that although God is transcendent and although he is separate, still he is everything. And we can worship him in this everything. And how do we do this? In referencing to the previous verse, we do this by obedience to the Guru, and we do this also... Brahma Varchasvi, which is the main thing that Vishnu Chakrabarti Thakur and Baladevi Jibhusha comment on in this verse. 
that one gains this ability to see beyond duality from the Shastra. Therefore, if we're not regularly hearing and studying and contemplating, last night we talked about how we really hear and how we contemplate and then how we enter into a kind of silence of receiving and realization. If we don't do that, then the ability to see beyond duality and the ability to feel Krishna in the heat and in the light and other living entities will be very difficult to obtain. It will remain something far ahead of us for some kind of sadhus that maybe will become someday. But as, as we absorb ourselves, particularly in the Vedas and following the instructions of the gurus, then it's available for everybody. None of us is really more qualified than anybody else on that platform. We all have equal access, especially Srila Prabhupada, making the Vedas available to everybody in, in English and in all different languages. Of the world. And by meditating, then we start, oh yeah, there's Krishna in the heat, there's Krishna in the light, there's Krishna in the bird, there's Krishna. One starts to really become Krishna conscious. So, questions, comments, corrections, additions, subtractions. Chastisement. Yes, I'd like to share a re- reflection. Uh, you were talking on the beginning how people uh, see Krishna either as the energy or or, um, or person who is somewhere there and he's a creator. Mm-hmm. So that brought to me that um, although Krishna is everything, uh, people have uh, limited access to understand Krishna. Mm. Therefore, we have Brahman, we have Paramatma, mm. and we have Bhagavan. So uh, they have partial understanding of Krishna and it is spiritual, it's not material. But we have uh, special access because it's based on bhakti or devotion. Mm. So uh, they cannot know, they cannot know Krishna as, as we know. So um, that's, that, that's a big di- difference. Thank you. And uh, one more thing, when you were saying about uh, seeing Krishna in, in, in everyone, I had one very beautiful explanation that every living entity manifests some opulence of Krishna. Mm. So we can respect that opulence because somebody has money, somebody has knowledge, somebody has mm. some skills. That is right. Prabhupada talks about that. Prabhupada talks about that. That everyone is manifesting some of Krishna's opulence in, in some way. Of some potency. So we can some potency of Krishna. Yes, very nice. I mean, Prabhupada talks about that in respect to you know government leaders. They have some of the power. someone steals some money from you, should you take them to court or not? So there's... Let's think about making Krishna smile. What would make Krishna smile? What does he want? What does Krishna want in the world? Yes. And what does he want also in the world? Peace. Peace. And and what else? Surrender? Huh? Love. Happiness? Love. Love? Justice? Justice. 
Where did the law come from that thou shalt not steal? Whose law is that? Whose rule is that? It's Krishna's. It's his rule. What's the benefit of having someone in the government punish a thief? You may not repeat? Well, but specifically the government. What's the benefit of having the government punish a thief rather than me punishing a thief or you punishing a thief? Well, they may do it again. They may not do it again. Hopefully that will help them not do it again. But there's a very specific benefit. Because, yeah? It sets a precedent in society. But for the thief. What's the benefit for the thief? The government is the representative of? Krishna. So when the government punishes a criminal... Correction, reforming. What does the criminal not have to do then? They don't have to get future karma because they're getting it in the form of the government punishment. The government punishment is the giving of their karmic reaction. This is why Prabhupada says if a murderer is hanged by the government, then they don't have to suffer in their next life for having committed murder. So when the authorized representative of God gives out punishment in a system of justice properly, which, of course, it doesn't always happen like that, but if it happens like that, then that punishment given is that person's karma. It's that person's karmic reactions. So by taking somebody through the justice system, what, how, where do you think the person's going to suffer more? If they get punished immediately or very soon by the government or if they wait to another life? What would give them more suffering? Next life. Next life, definitely. Because the longer you wait, the more interest you pay. In general, it's like that, isn't it? So it's a real favor to people to have to that soul to get them have some reaction from the government. It's a great favor to them. And also it pleases Krishna that it establishes justice and peace in society. It's very hard for people to think about Krishna consciousness in society when there's rampant crime. It's, it's difficult. Any of you who've lived in a place where there was rampant crime, like if you lived in Johannesburg or something like that. It, it's hard. I mean, as soon as you get off the plane in Johannesburg, you feel the fear in the air. Any of you who've been there? You, you, you can almost taste it. Everywhere you go, people are overwhelmed with fear. And if you have fear, then you're not peaceful. Ah, uh -huh, yeah. Okay? Yes, that's the antithesis of peace, is fear, correct? And Krishna says, how can there be any happiness without peace? It's much harder to engage people in spiritual life if they have some heavy-duty burden materially, like Prabhupada says, if people are hungry. You know, they, they can't, you can't talk about God to somebody who's hungry. So, therefore, Krishna wants a society where there's peace. That will make Krishna smile. Now, if you're taking the person to court because you want them to suffer, then you're in trouble. Okay? Because any desire to identify the perpetrator of a crime against us so that that person can suffer makes us, according to Dharma the Bull, as equally guilty as the perpetrator. So as soon as you say, he did it, he made me suffer, ah, instantly you're as guilty as the perpetrator. Why? Because that's our destiny. The person is just the agent. That person isn't the cause of my suffering. I'm the cause of my suffering. Nobody but me is the cause of my suffering. The apparent cause, they're just the agent. They're just the delivery person. 
I ordered the wrong thing in the mail. It's not the fault of the postal carrier that I foolishly placed the wrong order. And we shouldn't desire anyone to suffer. Like Prahlad Maharaj said, my father committed so many grievous offenses against me and against you. Prahlad wasn't a fool. He didn't say, oh, he didn't do anything. He said, he did really serious stuff. And Hiranyakashipu was like the Adi child abuser. I mean, he was. But there wasn't any CPO. There wasn't a child protection organization. You know. Hiranyakashipu was, was running the whole police force of the universe. But Prahlad said to, her, to the same day, I want him to be purified. This. I, want him, I want him to be excused. I want him to be purified without suffering. So that's the meaning of forgiveness. The meaning of forgiveness is everything that comes to me is my own, and those who, due to their own sinful desires, act as agents of harm, let them be purified without suffering. Let them be purified. You want them to be purified. If they're not purified, they're going to suffer. So you want them to be purified. But you want them to be purified without suffering. You'd be happy if the thief would learn his lesson without going to jail and without paying a fine. That would be your desire. Your desire would be if the thief would come and say, wow, I really messed up to you. I really hurt you. I really caused you suffering. I really put you in anxiety. Now whenever you walk down the street, you're in fear. I really messed up your life. What can I do? Let me work and return the money and do something in addition because I didn't just take the money, I took other things from you too. That's what you want. You want the thief to come to that realization of, of their own accord without punishment. And uh, Suniti, in talking to Druva, she said, anyone who desires harm for others will suffer from that very same harm. So I always ask people, who here have le has learned a wonderful, incredible lesson? They're so happy for the lesson, but the way you learned it was painful and difficult. How many people have had that experience? And how many of us can say, I learned a wonderful lesson, and I learned it in a joyous way? How many of us have learned a wonderful lesson in a joyous way. Some people here have never learned anything in life at all. <laughs> so I'm sorry for those of you who've never learned anything. So for those of us who've learned something in life, would you rather learn it in a joyous way or in a suffering way? Joyous. I've had some people say they like to learn through suffering, and I'm not going to talk about that right now. But one of the reasons that we learn through suffering is that we desire other people to learn through suffering. It boomerangs to us. So any time that we think, oh, I hope that person suffers, we are creating a reaction where you will have to learn something through suffering. So if you're tired of learning through suffering, if you've ever thought, Krishna, can you please teach me everything I want to know through ecstasy rather than through pain? The other thing is you have to listen when he teaches you through ecstasy. You have to pay attention. That's the other point. Don't wish evil for anyone. Don't wish harm to anyone, even those who cause the greatest harm to you or people that you know. So never wish them evil. So if you take the person to court, it should be only and solely to make Krishna smile. That Krishna will be happy if there's justice in the world, that Krishna will be happy if the government has an opportunity to give this person their reactions. Now there will be much less that that would please Krishna, it would create the balance in society. But for yourself, you hope that this person learns all of their lessons in the easiest, fastest, most joyful way possible that you don't wish any harm from them at all. Is that all right? That's a very short synopsis of my whole seminar on forgiveness. So anybody else have any questions? <laughs> it was a sutra. 
Okay, so we're ready today. Meditate on Krishna and something, some other living entity and heat and light in ourselves, in Guru. Don't make it something that we just read in the Shastra and then we forget about it an hour later. But something that we really contemplate on, as we were talking about last night. That we really understand what is this verse saying. I'm sure it says a hundred million things other than what we talked about. And then to, to really contemplate it. What does this mean? Make it real for yourself. I'm sure there's many ways in which this verse is going to be real for each of you that we have not talked about in the class. And perhaps some of the things we've talked about just don't really resonate with you, so find it for yourself, your own understanding. How can I find God in Guru? How can I find God in other living entities? How can I find God in myself? How can I find God in heat and light and in the fire? And then take that, that contemplation and open in, in a silence for Krishna to manifest those truths. For Krishna to make it real. For Krishna to take it from the realm of the intellect to the realm of, of experience. So that we actually experience that Krishna is in every living entity. That every living entity in one sense is Krishna. That I am in one sense also Krishna. That the heat and the light and the fire is Krishna. That the guru is also Krishna. And that way, because we're always with ourselves, huh? Yeah. We're always with ourselves. We're always with some other living entity. We're always with the heat and the light. We're always with the instruction of Guru. That you can always be Krishna conscious. Thank you. Shri Prabhupada.